Hello and welcome to a totally new episode of How Employable Are You? I'm Nikhil Dindakurti and with me I have my co-host Meryl. Hey Meryl, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing great, doing great. Lovely. So we are very much looking forward for this episode, which is some kind of our own original take on this age-old debate. In fact, the pandemic is giving new life to this question. Generalist or specialist? Who is in more demand? Or what I would say, putting all your eggs in one basket or diversify. So let's ask Meryl, can you define both of them for us? I love the analogy that you brought in about putting the eggs in the basket. So in a very similar vein, without deviating much from your beautiful example over there, a generalist is a person who has multiple skill sets, all right? So it's a question of depth versus breadth, right? In the case of a generalist, it is breadth of skill that they focus on. And generalists tend to be better facilitators. So a lot of the administerial work or careers that involve multiple skill sets coming into the point of play, generalists will excel in. Whereas if you look at specialists, they are people who have had laser focus on what they want to do and they have a depth of knowledge without the breadth of skill set, right? So if you look at it, both categories of individuals come with distinctive uh, accomplishments of their own, distinctive pluses and perks of their own. But while we are laying out these definitions and trying to understand these people, we should bear in mind that these are not watertight distinctions and at any point in time, a generalist can become a specialist and a specialist can acquire generalist acumen. How does that do for a definition? Oh. I mean, that's actually well put and it kind of gives me a little more context of what we're talking. But I just want to add in because for my more understanding and also to give audience a better idea about why we talk about yes. it. Yes. I think this concept of having a generalist or specialist label, what it does is it helps us kind of structure or formulate a plan towards our career and imagine you're an engineer who got out of some kind of a very specific division of work or category let's say chemical or biotechnology or something like that and you have the option of being a generalist or someone who called as a general manager or assistant manager or something who kind of have a wide task of activities versus you go to a job which is more specialized as a technical assistance or lab assistance or something in that case right both the places, imagine as you start your career, you might end up being in a similar payroll with a similar, uh, you know, scope of revenue and all of that. But as you progress more and more with a lot of demand in hand, with a lot of years going forward, mm -hmm. a lot of things can change. And the both careers have completely different trajectories towards growth in terms of career, right? And Whatever you're going to choose, you need to have an idea of which direction you want to go. And some important factors that we're going to be discussing today can actually help uh, in terms of planning your career forward. And this is actually a very important and also int like interesting idea altogether. And putting that thought aside, when we actually did research more on understanding where do these categories come from and why it is very relevant at today's point in career or in otherwise, we come across this person called David Epstein and the book he wrote, Range. In here, David Epstein spoke about a lot of ideas and a lot of uh, uh, cases and examples of different patterns of thoughts. And there are all of, there are a lot of these thoughts which are branched out into a whole aspects. But we want to cover some of those which kind of use a very good distinction, both the positives and negatives of it. So Meryl, can you explain 
the difference between intense specialization and excellence achieved after a sample period so the idea that you pointed out nikhil the dichotomy that you're pointing to is one of the core ideas that david epstein is trying to deal with in the initial sections of the book so it is in line with a lot of sports related research that goes on to establish that elite athletes are people who don't initially zero in on the sport that they want to succeed in but actually have a significantly long sampling period where they explore multiple different sports and then go on to choose a sport and prioritize and excel in that so in order to kind of illustrate this point he takes up two stories and these are of two sporting legends one is roger federer and the other one is tiger woods so both roger federer and tiger woods are well respected in their fields federer is a tennis icon and tiger woods is like the god of golf so if you look at federer's story unlike the popular misconception i guess federer is not somebody who initially went into tennis he played a range of different sports and also happened to love music i guess and then zeroed in on tennis after he had a lot of exposure to these sports and then has gone on to become a legend in his own way whereas if you look at tiger woods his father is somebody who helped him kind of focus on golf from a very young age in fact starting as early as his infancy and then giving that laser sharp focus in training and bringing him up to where he is right so both are very well established but if you look at roger federer's case he's gone on to become such a superior player that even in his 40s his talent remains unmatched right he's playing at such a wonderful strong level even when a lot of people are tapping out closer to his age so the argument is essentially that like the longer you have a sampling period you're able to gain exposure to multiple different strategies and tactics and fields and you're able to bring all of that intelligence into the one field that you eventually want to focus on from what you said what i kind of um, kind of basically recall is some kind of the sports and boxing related movies and like in these movies in the starting they introduce you the sport and the the, the protagonist and at the end of the movie or at the climax the protagonist will with the part of the sport will learn something of another skill let's say like humanity trust uh, life and like i don't know sometimes hypnotism or right, like in the, in that uh, what do you call it? uh Uh, like will uh, will smith sons uh, movie uh, karate kid that guy learns that snake thing like see like having that kind of a wider uh, range of uh, skills like you end up uh, excelling that and uh, that's kind of keep getting back again in this uh, movies and i think that kind of suits it here definitely and what makes this experience a little more enjoyable even in the movie verse and in real life is the fact that we all like to learn or imbibe information in meaningful order just like you and i will have an easier time recollecting 10 words in an order provided they are a logical sequencing of words versus if they were like 10 or 15 random words right we as human beings also tend to internalize information provided they are in meaningful chunks So Epstein actually brings up an example of a chess grandmaster called Susan Polgar uh, and they did an experiment with her wherein they wanted her to kind of recreate a chess pattern that she saw for only a few seconds and they figured out that as long as the pattern that she saw fell within logic and the rules of the game she was able to replicate that very easily on the chessboard 
but when the pattern was a little out of the ordinary or it didn't subscribe to any logic it completely threw her off the balance so when i think this example shows you that when you over specialize or you you deep dive too much into one particular field what happens is anything that is not a meaningful sequence of information can completely throw you off balance and your entire expertise you can see it crumbling in front of your eyes right so when i think it it's kind of like a warning against over specialization the way that i see it i will just add one more example to this but a little more uh, like a deeper understanding right like again this is something that uh, kind of happened to me as well well i went to a doctor a while back and uh, i had like two three symptoms that kind of relates to one part of a like a fever kind of a thing and uh, there is also another uh, uh, what do you call um, like a diagnostic thing which has similar first two levels and the third level is different from both of them and doctor without listening to the third level or the third symptom kind of tre- gave me like you know what go for this particular medicine take rest for this couple of days and all and he just kind of closed that thought but imagine if there is a good chance that if proper diagnostic is done and the third test like the third symptom is revealed then there is a whole new track of direction that need to go by just having some kind of a preconceived thought or i'm being little more prejudiced about the whole situation or make maybe they're thinking that oh i already know what this two symptoms is which is like 80% certain this is exactly what is that to happen right that kind of a false idea that specialists end up falling into and i kind of that kind of relates getting into a huge error when someone gets in and also epstein kind of talks about this whole wide of spectrum in terms of specialization that it works and in favor for certain kind of activities and it is not so there is one side of the spectrum which is called kinder environments and some in the other side it's called wicked environments if you take chess as a game right if someone specializes in chess in 1980 or if they play the match in 2022 in australia london let's say new zealand switzerland or india you pretty much play in the same set of rules so you don't really need to be like if you go a little wrong it doesn't have a lot of consequences for that but imagine you specialized in political science in 1980 in let's say us and today when you come to india and you try to and let's say at that point you had gold medals and you have like phd research papers and all of that but today in india the political science means nothing that thing is completely unupdated and uh, you will have huge consequences for that so wicked environment is much more uh, something that you need to have a keep on getting updated to and something that you need to have a little more conscious thought of and on the other hand kinder is a little more like you can specialize in that and there are no consequences if you go a little off I guess the underlying difference between a kinder environment and a wicked environment would be for me the level of uncertainty the quantum of uncertainty right and the ease with which you can formulate a pattern so the chess analogy you gave in kinder environment it is a situation where perhaps it's easier for you to play on basis of the patterns you can form you can deduce what your opponent is going to do whereas if it's a wicked environment where I think it's it's like like if you think about it chess or puzzles you have limited number of moves like being specialized actually means you are in a progress of 100% you reached 60 70 80 but in wicked environment even you feel you reached 100% at that mm-hmm. very point tomorrow you might be again 50% back or 20% back or 
something that you are not in the astral definitely like if you take the chess example itself i promise this will be the last example from my side for this conversation uh you can take kind of environment <laughs> where maybe it's easier to play between humans you know like you take a magnus carlsen versus vishwanath and anand you're both human there are limitations with how many patterns you can conjure in your head but you look at games where let's say gary kasparov has gone up against somebody like i uh, not somebody something like deep blue which is an ai software he's lost the game to the ai software because obviously ai can conjure multiple different moves that the human mind cannot even think of right so chess itself has become a very interesting analogy here for how suddenly a kind environment can become a wicked environment and kasparov is you know a maestro in the field right he's not just any guy he's a maestro so if anything like i feel we can neatly wind up our reflections on david epstein's book by really emphasizing that while specialization is wonderful we need specialists in the world what really happens is when you over specialize when you're focusing too much on your part of the job and the larger value chain there is a bit of tunnel vision going on and you can be out of sync with what is happening in the rest of the process or what your other teammates are doing so a specialist is way more effective than they already are only if they're able to work in tandem with the generalist on the team or with the other specialists on the team otherwise they might end up making the mistake of you know seeing everything as a nail because they have a hammer that is to close it off on a david epstein note itself i mean that's a very smart way to put it um let's say if i go a little wider in terms of picture can you tell me who would loss longer in the job market like let's say even if you take an example what i told in the beginning or let's say we come up with a whole new example like who would make sense in today's world that is a good question and i feel like i'm driving nails into my coffin if i give a definitive answer to that one <laughs> honestly speaking it's hard to tell uh and i want our listeners also to kind of know what really came up in my reading as well for instance like covid-19 across multiple domains has shown a need for more generalists so if you look at spaces like pharma and uh, the non-profit sector where obviously funds and resources are very slim it is important for one particular individual to take on a wide range of roles and responsibility so industries like that would naturally hire more generalists than specialists also because specialists are expensive to an organization right whereas if you look at a startup that believes in maybe agile philosophy or even an established corporate today that believes in agile philosophy and if they are maybe looking out for a freelancer to join them they would want to hire a specialist more than a generalist and even if you look at the startup space you know you find two different trends going on some would like to have generalists because they can't hire dedicated individuals for each task whereas some others would want specialists because maybe they have one or two generalists running the show so there are parallel trends multiple trends that are happening across multiple different sectors so the truth is there is no one definite answer to this question and if there's anything our listeners want to take away from our conversation today honestly it is keep your ear on the ground depending on which industry you want to get hired in depending on which workplace you want to work in understand what skill sets you should imbibe understand the requirements of the employer 
and then decide to apply for that place and decide what you want to do with your skill sets. Sure. So imagine our audience kind of have an idea that, oh, I am actually going in this particular space or direction. Consider this, right? If you call yourself a reasonably good journalist, things that you need to consider is how good and how qualitative you are in the wide range of tasks that you handle. You are good with three skills or five skills or 10 skills. Like how really good you are. If you're good at negotiation, communication, bargaining, uh, reaching to your vendors and client servicing and all of these skills combined, like how deep and how good you are. That makes you a really, really good journalist. And imagine when you go to a company, because journalists are some kind of people who can be easily hired because on paper, all their skills kind of look similar, right? So that way, the only way for you to define is having a very core good quality around it and good experience. But when it comes to speciality, right, I feel a couple of things that really make a lot of sense. One is demand out there in the market, like the demand of product, like how much people are required out there uh, for that particular given task, right? That kind of defines everything about a specialist. Imagine you are having like a billion dollar company and you are working in the meta space and uh, let's say you need this one specific style of engineer who can only work in the meta space. I mean, even the engineer is a, let's say, a very, very, very bad human. Just because they have very brilliant skills, you hire a premium money to work with them. I mean, like, that is a certain part truth, right? Uh, a specialist, the only way they can be really good is they need to understand the demand out there in the market and the kind of what do you call, uh, grip they have in the quality to skills. I think in a larger spectrum, the industry that works, like any industry that you take now, which kind of category people work more is through these two factors, having like the decision making, how much decision making goes into it and how much upskilling need to be done in that particular job role. Like having these two factors considered, you can ideally understand um, like if you're fitting in pharma, being a generalist, or if you're going into biotech, being a generalist, or if you are going into finance, being a generalist, like which one works well for you? True, true. I, I think you couldn't have said it better at this point. Two very important pillars of the whole process. Uh, demand and ability to make decisions is one. And the second one is the quantum of upskilling required, right? If you don't upskill then you find yourself becoming more and more irrelevant in the job market. So what do we do at the moment, right? What can a generalist do in order to succeed in a field where more specialists are required? Or let's say there is a specialist that is in a generalist-dominated workspace, like in the case of civil services. It is possible for both parties to actually excel, provided that, number one, generalists are able to upskill find out a few things they're passionate about and maybe zero down on them in their free time so they can have at least one leg up over their specialist peers. Now, since you gave the example of an engineer who's probably someone with uh, bad soft skills or a terrible human being in general, what can people like that do? So job seekers today of the employment industry has come up with a jargon called transferable skills which very closely ties in with our discussion in the very first episode where we talk about the mandatory skill sets that individuals are supposed to have today. So if you're a specialist in a particular field and you want to thrive in an economy that is becoming, let's say, more and more digital and 
more and more uh, requiring of you to have a brand and an identity of your own or an environment where instead of working in a silo, you should work as a team. There are these transferable skills like soft skills, digital skills, crisis management, uh, you know, building up your confidence, mentorship and guidance, you know, testing and quality assurance. So these are some skills that you as a specialist can actually pick up in order to stand shoulder to shoulder with your generalist peers. So it is possible for both parties to actually succeed, level up a little and be a little more relevant in today's job market. In in this whole equation, like I would say, like one of the bullseye to approach this problem is, like I'll come back to the same example I started with, right? Imagine there is a chemical engineer at one end and there is someone like, and you have options to work at either as being a specialist or being a generalist and which kind of path uh, trajectory that will take you if you're going to stick to one side of it. I think look at the peers around you who have reached like good positions, the CEO levels or like the top management or general manager kind of levels. Observe which skill sets they have begun with. There is a pattern you end up observing, right? Even though people have specialized skills. Definitely. Um, they end up learning some kind of a generalized skills as well as part of their uh, career. And that is what makes them grow bigger in an authoritative or a leadership role. Like a great CA will at certain point be chief financial officer. And their job role not just involves in looking at accounts, but also managing multiple aspects related to finance and leadership aspects in the company as well. Same goes with the technicalities or HR or management or in any spectrum, right? So at the end of the day, uh, anyone, right, a generalist to survive in this market should learn one or two skills which are Ooh. specialized. So it will give you an edge when you go get hired someplace. And a specialist having learned some good amount of uh, uh, you know, generalized skills will also make you go bigger and like in, in a top level very easily. And I would say some point you go from 80 to 20 to like 60 to 40 or let's say 50 to 50 in 5 to 10 years down the line. And doesn't matter whichever the direction market moves, you have both the skills in a reasonable level and you have a path trajectory towards that side. And it should make you survival in this market. And that's my two cents, actually. Well said, Nikhil. And if anything, a lot of what you said also is very much in line with some of my observations in the last three and a half years, where I've seen that you might maybe start out as a specialist in a particular profession. But as you go up the managerial rung, you specialize less and less. And the kind of work that you do mostly involves people management and crisis management, right? So no matter what permutation you're looking at in terms of speciality versus transferable skills, it's always good to have a healthy balance between the two. And, you know, I might be going a little off topic, but today I feel like a lot of companies are diversifying and going out of their traditional USP, right? You have an Ola, for instance, which started out being, you know, in the conveyance concierge kind of a sector. But now they have a food arm as well. Same goes with Amazon. And if you look at even luxury fashion brands like your Versace or Cavalli and Siriano, 
a lot of them were hardcore into fashion design but now they've gone into stuff like interior design and decor which is completely different although the creative spirit and the spark are common to both so if companies today can diversify if they can widen the ambit of what they do and if disruption in one particular sector can come from a completely different sector for instance the ola example that we gave right food sector being disrupted by someone in the hyper local concierge space why can't we upskill what's your excuse to not upskill and diversify so i feel like it's important for us also to explore our passion explore our interests just the way companies are doing today so all the points that you made meril make sense and if i were to choose from the example i just mentioned in the starting of this episode is it right thing to put all your eggs in one basket or to diversify i would go for the diversification option it's good to look at the market and assess what to do next with that let's look at what's waiting for you in the fourth episode have you ever heard this question who am i nan yaar nin yavaru well we thought on the fourth episode we'll do a little introspection and we're going to go explore this concept called ikigai it's one of my favorite concepts and it kind of gave me some kind of assurance on the path i took more on this in the next one until then see you bye bye a super exciting episode is waiting for you ciao for now <laughs>